speak tonight about the factors of greed, hatred, and delusion in our minds. As living beings, all of us experience in different ways certain levels of dissatisfaction. It's inherent in the very nature of being alive, being in this body and in this mind. It's sometimes experienced as a sense of unease or uncertainty of things being not quite right. We experience this dissatisfaction through painful experiences that are clearly painful, like physical pain or mental pain. We experience this dissatisfaction through the loss of pleasant experiences that come and go. We also experience this just in the force of sheer repetition as things lose their stimulating effect. So many types of dissatisfaction in our lives. In response to this feeling of unease or dis-ease, we develop different defenses because it makes us uncomfortable. It's difficult to face, and especially if we don't understand the way out, if we don't have a sense of a path, it feels quite hopeless. If these defenses harden and become habit, then they can be described as character types. Within the Buddhist psychology, it talks about these three character types, the greedy type, the hateful type, or the angry type, and the deluded type, which is what I'd like to speak about tonight. While we are all a mixture of all of these different types, I think that if you listen somewhat carefully, you may be able to identify a particular flavor that seems quite familiar, more so than the others. First of these is greed. When any of us experience a state of greed in the mind, then it's almost as though we're trying to get away from the sense of dissatisfaction by a state of gaining or getting. When we have greed in the mind, when it's a factor that's operating strongly, then it's like we walk into a situation and we evaluate what we'll get out of it. It's like walking into a room and seeing everything that you like and everything you might have or want, disregarding that which is unpleasant. Because when the mind is full of greed, we want everything to be very nice, everything quite ordered and nice. So we walk into a room and see what we might get or what we might have. Or we walk into a meditation retreat with an acquisitive mind, with a mind that thinks of what we might get, what we might gain. The grasping mind or the greedy mind is a state that moves towards, that's a gathering in, an accumulating state. When it's strong, what happens is that the mind fixes on the object. The difficulty of this state is the way in which it operates to make us mistake pleasure and the experience of pleasure for a deeper kind of happiness. There's a hollowness or an emptiness in happiness that is based on pleasure 
Because along with that need for the pleasant object comes a need for it not to change. So we have to have things happen in a certain way and we have to be able to make them stay that way. And so it's endless. I think we have all experienced the weariness of going from object to object, from experience to experience, in a state of desire, looking for the end of that feeling, looking for the end of desire itself. I think we have all experienced how fatigued we become in that search, because it is endless. When greed is a strong factor in the mind, it's as though the world were covered in glue. The mind becomes really sticky. It sticks to this and it sticks to that, wanting this and wanting that. And if it becomes strong, then it becomes like we're enslaved or imprisoned to objects because we need new and better things all the time. Sights and sounds and sensations in the body and thoughts and smells and so on. You can see the role of desire or greed in practice. If you feel condemnation towards unpleasant experiences, if you feel a sense of inadequacy because things do not feel good enough, there's some desire or grasping at work there. Instead of establishing a relationship with our own dissatisfaction, we're trying to avoid it. We're trying to cover it up. There's an image that's used sometimes of a monkey that's in a tar trap. There's this patch of tar on the ground and the monkey is caught in it. The monkey has one paw that has somehow gotten caught in this trap and can't pull it away. So in an effort to free itself, the monkey puts down another paw and then another paw trying to hoist itself up out of the trap, and then another paw, and then finally the monkey puts down its head. That is a very stuck monkey. And this is what we do when we look for final satisfaction in this same world of the senses, which must inevitably change. When there's greed and grasping, looking for the perfect object, It's like staying within the same trap and yet wanting a way out. States that commonly arise when greed is strong are states of jealousy and pride and comparison and deceitfulness, states of indulgence, not caring, states of envy. Greed in the mind ranges from tenacious grasping to a very subtle kind of yearning or longing or wanting for any of the sense doors, whether it's sights or sounds or smells or tastes or touch sensation or mind objects, to be pleasant, to be pleasing. And while we all experience quite pleasant experiences, they can also be blinding. An example often given is of a frog that's in a small little pond and is told about the existence of the ocean and just does not believe it. Because of being so submerged, so familiar, and so lost 
in that circumscribed world. Cannot even imagine other possibilities, vaster possibilities. So this is what happens when we make greed a habit. The mind becomes fixed and rigid. We cannot see other possibilities. As a factor of mind, it tends to be somewhat difficult to work with because we do experience the pleasure of getting what we want when we get what we want. And so there's a kind of smoothness that makes it somewhat difficult to work ardently with this factor, to truly work towards letting go. And primarily what binds us to greed and cultivating greed, making it a habit, is ignorance. It's not being able to deeply sense how much things change. It's not being able to sense out of our own experience the dissatisfaction of wanting anything and the incredible joy of desirelessness. And so we're bound. It's the factor of greed. Next is the force of aversion in the mind. When aversion is a strong factor of mind, then it's almost as though we're trying to get away from this dissatisfaction, this inner dissatisfaction, by projecting it outwards. And once we project it outwards, then we find it everywhere. Everywhere we look, we see what's wrong. Aversion is the mind state that dislikes the object. It strikes out against it. It's a state that desires separateness, separation from what's happening, the creation of distance, of non-connection. It's a state that doesn't cling, but rather searches for faults. It's a state of repulsion, striking. And so when the mind is filled with aversion, it's like we walk into a room and we see everything that's wrong. We see what we don't like. We don't like what that person is wearing, and we don't like who that person is with, and we don't like the wallpaper, and we don't like this, and we don't like that. And again, it's a state that is endless. In one of the most famous quotes of the Buddha, he said, hatred will never cease by hatred. Hatred will only cease by love. And sometimes people take this to mean a mandate to be a kind of super perfect person who never has any difficulty, never has any response to things. There was a wonderful quote some years ago in, I think it was Newsweek, Newsweek or Time magazine. It was the quote of the year. It was the quote of Miss Kentucky of 1956, I think it was. This is 30 years later. Miss Kentucky of 1956, 30 years later, is quoted as saying, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of smiling. (laughs) That's 30 years of smiling for the camera. And I think sometimes people have that idea that if if we were to let go of aversion, if we were to let go of dislike, we would be walking around with this kind of perpetual simper on our faces and it would be this really pathetic state. But to really feel the existence of anger in one when we are burning with that force 
It is a horrible feeling. And the person who is suffering from it is ourselves. Hatred will never cease by hatred. It does not cease by intensifying it. It can only cease by the force of love, love and compassion. And we see this if we look at history. We see struggles for power with certain parties winning and being as violent and as angry and as oppressive as the previous parties and the new parties winning. And we see it go on and on and on. It's an endless cycle. The factor of aversion includes anger, it includes fear, vindictiveness, frustration, impatience, not liking. It includes guilt, which is a kind of aversion towards oneself. And all of these states are hurting. They're damaging states. They hurt ourselves and they hurt others. They're very painful in the moment of experiencing them because there's a kind of burning. And ironically, because of that, it's said to be easier to work with than greed, which is so smooth and so nice and so pleasant. There's a strong factor in the experience of aversion of expectations not being met. We have certain expectations about ourselves, about a situation, about another person, and that expectation is not met, and so we feel anger, we feel aversion. And once again, it's ignorance that binds us to this. Because if we really understood impermanence, if we really understood how out of control, out of our control things are, there would be the development of acceptance and patience and forgiveness. It's important to understand that anger does not exist inherent in any object, but rather exists in our relationship to it. In any situation, there are many possible responses that run the entire gamut, from anger to compassion and everything in between. When anger is very strong, it is functioning as a kind of distorting lens so that we cannot see clearly what is actually happening. We feel anger with pain, we feel anger with loss, anger with change. That means we feel anger towards life itself, because these are the elements of existence. It ranges from feelings of irritation through helplessness and powerlessness, which feed the sense of aversion. You can see the kinds of expectations that you might have had in coming to a situation like this. You have expectations about the place. You have expectations about the people. You have expectations about the serene and beautiful mind states that you will experience. And if these are not met, then there's aversion, there's impatience, there's dislike, there's hopelessness. And so it's a very important thing to understand. When we truly realize that we cannot stop the flow of painful and pleasant events and experiences, whether they are mild or extreme, then the mind doesn't get tossed back and forth, clinging and condemning, clinging and condemning. When aversion is strong, it leads to disharmony, it leads to suspiciousness, 
leads to a lack of trust and it leads to a lack of joy. Then the last quality is the quality of delusion. Delusion manifests from confusion through anxiety to uncertainty to a kind of rigidity of mind. It's characterized by things such as perplexity and dullness and sloth and torpor. When the mind is filled with delusion or when this is a strong quality, then we don't see greed and we don't see hatred as they are operating. So it's like experiencing the pain of being bound, of not being free and not even caring about it. When delusion is strong, it's quite difficult to understand impermanence, to understand unsatisfactoriness, to understand selflessness. And there's a kind of complacency about that. We just don't care enough. And so I see the factor of delusion as a way of covering up the sense of inner dissatisfaction as an attempt to protect ourselves from feeling the pain of it. And so we don't feel acutely at all. At times when this is operating strongly in the mind, we don't feel much sense of interest or motivation or energy. It's a state of negligence. And so a typical example of somebody who was experiencing strong delusion would be this person walking into the room and not even noticing what's happening. When I was traveling about a year and a half ago, I was traveling with a friend who wishes to remain anonymous, but she's a self-proclaimed greedy type. And I am a deluded type from beginning to end. And we used to have these amazing interchanges. We traveled through China and Tibet and Nepal and Burma together, where we'd go and check into a hotel room, and she would zero in immediately on which bed she wanted, she'd say, well, I'll take that one over there. And I'd say, okay, doesn't matter. And then maybe 15 or 20 minutes later, I would turn to her and say, well, why did you want that one? (laughs) And she'd say, because it's next to the window and the mosquito net doesn't have a hole in it and the mattress is firmer and because the paint is better. (laughs) You know, and she just noticed everything that was really nice about that spot. And I said, is that right? (laughs) So we deluded types are very nice to travel with, I'm told. I want to read to you from this book, the Visuddhimagga, as they describe various ways, various mannerisms and so on, in which you can discern which type of person you might be. The Visuddhimagga is a commentarial work. It was written about 500 years after the time of the Buddha. And it was written, it's about 838 pages. It was written in response to one question. The question basically says, how do we become free of what we are entangled in? And this is one one section of the book. How to tell one's temperament by way of posture. When one of greedy temperament is walking in their usual manner, they walk carefully, put their foot down slowly, put it down evenly, 
lifted up evenly, and their step is springy. One of hating temperament walks as though they were digging with the points of their feet, put their feet, put their feet down quickly, lift them up quickly, and their steps are dragged along. One of deluded temperament walks with a perplexed gait, puts their foot down hesitantly, lifts it up hesitantly, and their step is pressed down suddenly. The stance of one of greedy temperament is confident and graceful. That of one of hating temperament is rigid. That of one of deluded temperament is muddled. Likewise in sitting. And one of greedy temperament spreads their bed unhurriedly, lies down slowly, composing their limbs, and they sleep in a confident manner. When woken, instead of getting up quickly, they give their answer slowly, as though doubtful. One of hating temperament spreads their bed hastily anyhow. With their bodies flung down, they sleep with a scowl. When woken, they get up quickly and answer as though annoyed. One of deluded temperament spreads their bed all awry and sleeps mostly face downward with their bodies sprawling. When woken, they get up slowly, saying, huh? If you've ever wondered why I'm never at an early morning sitting, this is it. <laughs> By the action. Also in the acts of sweeping, etc., one of greedy temperament grasps the broom well, and they sweep cleanly and evenly without hurrying or scattering the sand as if they were strewing flowers. One of hating temperament grasps the broom tightly, and they sweep uncleanly and unevenly with a harsh noise, hurriedly throwing up the sand on each side. One of deluded temperament grasps the broom loosely, and they sweep neither cleanly nor evenly, <laughs> mixing the sand up and turning it over. As with sweeping, so too with any action, such as washing and dyeing robes and so on. One of greedy temperament acts gently, evenly, and carefully. One of hating temperament acts tensely, stiffly, and unevenly. One of deluded temperament acts unskillfully as if muddled, unevenly, and indecisively. By way of eating, one of greedy temperament likes eating rich, sweet food. When eating, they make a round lump, not too big, and eat unhurriedly, savoring the various tastes. They enjoy getting something good. One of hating temperament likes eating rough, sour food. When eating, they make a lump that fills their mouth, and they eat hurriedly without savoring the taste. They are grieved when they get something not good. One of deluded temperament has no settled choice. When eating, they make a small, unrounded lump, and as they eat, they drop bits into their dish, <laughs> smearing, smearing their faces with their minds astray, thinking of this and that. By seeing and so on. When one of greedy temperament sees even a slightly pleasing visible object, they look long as if surprised. They seize on trivial virtues, discount genuine faults, and when departing, they do so with regret as if unwilling to leave. When one of hating temperament sees even a slightly unpleasing visible object, they avoid looking long as if they were tired. They pick out trivial faults, discount genuine virtues, and when departing, they do so without regret, as if anxious to leave. When one of deluded temperament sees any sort of visible object, they copy what others do. <laughs> if they hear others criticize, they criticize. If they hear others praising, they praise. 
but actually they feel equanimity in themselves, the equanimity of unknowing. (laughs) The book then goes on to describe the appropriate setting for meditation for each type of person. So that if one were trying to create balance through the external circumstance, this is what it would call for. A suitable resting place for one of hating temperament is not too high or too low, provided with shade and water, with well-proportioned walls, posts, and steps, with well-prepared frieze and lattice work, brightened with various kinds of paintings, with an even, smooth, soft floor, adorned with festoons of flowers and a canopy of many-colored cloth, with bed and chair covered with well-spread, clean, pretty covers, smelling sweetly of flowers and perfumes. The right kind of road to their lodging is free from any sort of danger, traverses clean, even ground, and has been properly prepared. The right kind of road on which to wander for alms is free from danger, level, agreeable, with a village neither too far nor too near. The right kind of village in which to wander for alms is where people thinking, now our Lord is coming, prepare a seat in a sprinkled, swept place, and go out to meet him, take his bowl, lead him to the house, seat him on a prepared seat, and serve him carefully with their own hands. A suitable lodging for one of greedy temperament has an unwashed sill and stands level with the ground, and it can be an either overhanging rock with an unprepared ledge, a grass hut, or a leaf house. It ought to be spattered with dirt, full of bats, dilapidated, too high or too low, in bleak surroundings, threatened by lions and tigers, with a muddy, uneven path where even the bed and chair are full of bugs. The right kind of road for for him to wander, monk, for alms, is disagreeable with no village near and uneven. The right kind of village for him to wander for alms is where people wander about as if oblivious of him. Whereas he is about to leave without getting alms, even from a single family, people call him into the sitting hall saying, come and give him gruel and rice, but do so as casually as if they were putting a cow in a pen. The right kind of lodging for one of deluded temperament has a view and is not shut in, where the four quarters are visible as they sit there. The rest is as stated for one of hating temperament. And as Joseph once told me, the ultimate test of whether you're a greedy type or not is whether in hearing what is a suitable situation for one of hating temperament, you feel desired to be one of hating temperament. (laughs) Because then you get to sit in this totally lovely surrounding. What do we do short of providing situations full of bats for one type and lovely, luxurious festoons of flowers for others? It's said that when the force of greed is transmuted in the mind, when it is transformed, what it becomes is a very strongly developed sense of faith, because there are certain similarities between the quality of greed and the quality of faith. They both have a sense of drawing near, of liking, of opening. 
and neither of them is an austere quality. We can actually cultivate non-greed. We can make it a practice in our lives. We do that through actually working on cultivating the factor of contentment. We can actually cultivate non-greed. We can make it a practice in our lives. We do that through actually working on cultivating the factor of contentment, which is an ability to let go of attachment to one's preferences. It doesn't mean that you will no longer have any preferences, but there will no longer be that attachment, so there will no longer be that suffering when they are not met. We practice non-greed in our lives through a very strong commitment to morality, to virtue, so that we have the confidence of knowing that no matter how strong a desire may arise in the mind, we will not harm someone or ourselves for the sake of filling it, of fulfilling it. We cultivate non-greed by actually working with the force of renunciation and being able to let go, part of that being the quality of generosity. Generosity is talked about in the Buddhist teachings as being an act that is surrounded by joy. It is joyful when we contemplate it, it is joyful when we exercise it, it is joyful when we remember it, and it is joyful when we are the recipients of it. It is something that is completely surrounded by the quality of joy. And so a very classical contemplation in the Buddhist tradition is to actually recall to mind times when we have been generous. Not for the sake of glorifying our egos, but for the sake of filling the mind with that sense of joy and lightness and rapture. It's a very strong and powerful practice. When we sit in Asia, in almost every situation, the food is donated. Each meal is donated by a different person or a different family. So last year when I was sitting in Burma, each day, twice a day, we'd walk into the dining room and there would be a little sign outside which would say who was donating that meal. And sometimes it would be these incredibly elaborate, lavish feasts. These people would sit there and watch you eat it. And sometimes it would be these really meager, poor amounts of food. And those people would also sit and watch you eat it because it was the best that they could offer. It's an amazing experience just to be the recipient constantly of generosity on the part of people who do not, in fact, have very much. It's a very beautiful quality that we can actually cultivate, and it functions to free the mind from that habit of grasping, of wanting, of being greedy.
So as we practice morality and generosity and a state of contentment, we come to have a different sense of freedom and spaciousness from an inner dissatisfaction. Rather than relating out of greed or grasping, we can relate more out of a space of peace and contentment with whatever arises, understanding that there is nothing to be added or gained beyond this very moment. This is working with force of greed. Said that when aversion or anger in the mind is transmuted, it becomes a strong quality of wisdom because there are certain similarities between wisdom and and anger or aversion. The similarity is that this kind of mind will not accept mindlessly what is told. It really looks carefully. In anger, it looks for faults. In wisdom, it simply looks very penetratingly, very critically, analytically, which is a great strength. Not to take anything for granted and not to be satisfied with what is told to you, but really wanting to know for yourself, to investigate. And so this is what is possible in the purification of that quality. We work with bringing that mind state into balance by cultivating these four qualities that are grouped together and are called the four Brahma-viharas. The first of these I spoke of the other day, and that is the force of metta, or loving-kindness which is a a quality of gentleness, of removing expectations, of allowing things to be as they are. It's a quality of acceptance and openness. It means being a friend, a friend to oneself and a friend to others. There was a time when a particular monk around the Buddha, his name was Ananda, asked the Buddha a question It seems from the scriptures that almost every time Ananda asked the Buddha a question, the Buddha said, that's just not right. You know, what you're saying is not correct. You should see it in this other way. So for many people, Ananda has a particularly endearing quality. One day, Ananda went to the Buddha and said, it seems to me, Buddha, Lord Buddha, that Half of the holy life is having good friends. And the Buddha said, that's not so, Ananda. You shouldn't say that. Because in fact, the whole of the holy life is having good friends. This is what we, we cultivate quite consciously and energetically. It's the ability to be a good friend to ourselves, to those around us, and to all of life without distinction, without um, a discrimination between those whom we like and those whom we don't, those who have been good to us and those who have not, just the simple factor of being alive. Next of these qualities is the force of compassion. 
which is defined as the state in which the heart quivers in response to pain. There's like a movement, a trembling in response to pain. It's not a state of grief. It's not a state of anger. It's not a state of aversion. It's a very tender and caring space that wishes to see the end to suffering. It's not based on a sense of separateness of ourselves and others, but is based on a sense of togetherness, on oneness. And to feel compassion, the necessary prerequisite is an ability to acknowledge and feel pain, not to, having, not to have to block it off and deny it and pretend that it's not there. The third of these qualities is the quality of sympathetic joy or rejoicing in the happiness of others, which is a very rare quality in this world. Mostly, we tend to feel envious and jealous and even malicious towards someone who is experiencing some amount of happiness that we fear may be greater than our own. And so sympathetic joy is said to be the most difficult of these three to develop. And yet it is also a source of incredible happiness. When we actually can rejoice, we can feel delight in the happiness of others. The last of these qualities of the four Brahma-viharas is the state of equanimity. Having composure, being able to bear with change being able to allow things to unfold as they do. And so we can accommodate what happens without reaction. We'll be speaking a lot more extensively about the practice of these four qualities. And then it's said that when delusion is purified in the mind, when that state is transmuted, It becomes a state of pure equanimity. It's not the equanimity of not noticing, but it's an equanimity of not being attached, being able to bear with change, being able to bear with what comes. To cut through, to make this transformation from delusion to equanimity revolves a lot around arousing energy, being able to cut through confusion, We can do this by learning how to begin again and again and again so that we do not feel stymied or stuck. We can do this through having some clarity of reflection about truths such as impermanence or unsatisfactoriness or egolessness to bring interest, to bring motivation, to bring energy to understand that this process we are engaged in is not an ad hoc process, that this is an ancient teaching that has been preserved through the force of lineage, and that participating in in it, as we all do, to whatever extent, is an act that deserves a great deal of respect that we need to take care with it. And so not to be negligent, not to be foolish in wasting opportunity, really to to develop some energy, some motivation. 
It also involves developing an ability to trust one's own experience, to learn to rely on one's own experience, not to be dependent on the words of others so as not to get perplexed and confused. There was a time when the Buddha was asked, how can you tell what is a good practice? You know, all these people come and they teach various things. How do you know? How does one know what is actually a good meditation practice that will lead to freedom? And he gave several criteria, which I will offer to you. He said that first you take the meditation practice and you put it into practice. And then you see if it leads to a weariness of the circularity of life. This doesn't mean an aversion or hatred towards life, but a sense of that endlessness when we are driven by greed, by hatred, by delusion. If it leads to an appreciation of the weariness of that, then you can consider it a true teaching. Then he said, you put it into practice And if by practicing it, you find that it leads to the cooling out of the kind of defilements that can rage within us, that can really torment us, then you can consider it a true teaching. Then he said, put it into practice. And if you find that it leads to the experience of peace, you can consider it a true teaching. He said, put it into practice. And if you find that it leads to a special kind of knowledge that is different than acquired knowledge that we get from listening to other people or believing other people, then you can consider it a true teaching. If it leads to a sense of penetrating into the truth as though there were a wall up and then the wall was broken through so that we can see clearly, we can see for ourselves, can consider it a true teaching. And then finally he said that if you put it into practice and if it leads to the end of suffering, if it leads to Nibbana, you can consider it a true teaching. And so to transmute this state of delusion into a pure form of equanimity means that we have to learn to rely on ourselves and our own experience. We have to put it into practice and assess for ourselves whether, in fact, it points to the truth. Underlying this, the simplest way of all, the simplest thing of all to do, is to be mindful. Because in each and every moment of mindfulness, there's the eradication of greed, the eradication of aversion, and the eradication of delusion for that moment. And if we can follow that moment with another moment of mindfulness, then we've done it twice. And then another moment of mindfulness, and another moment of mindfulness, and there's the whole show right there. This is why this quality of mindfulness is so powerful. The word sounds so innocuous. And yet the Buddha called mindfulness our greatest protection. 
It is something that we can truly rely upon in any situation. And it is not something that is out of hand, that we can't touch upon. It is something that is very accessible when we remember. It is not something that is difficult to manifest in a single moment when we remember. And so our practice becomes one of remembering. And as soon as we remember, we reconnect. We become mindful of actually what is happening. We're experiencing it fully in the moment, without grasping, without aversion, and without delusion. This is the incredible power of that one quality, is that it will eradicate these three forces which bind us. If we can do this with some amount of continuity, if it actually is a question of putting it into practice, then we can continue to discover and rediscover what the Buddha himself experienced so that it is a living practice. It is not something removed or abstract, something that happened long ago and far away. It is something we are manifesting in each moment of our lives. The Buddha is quoted as saying that to offer food, to perform an act of generosity towards the Buddha himself and the Sangha is an act of extraordinary merit. It really it opens up the mind and it's a great power on the path to have done something like that. And a hundred times stronger than that act is for one moment to generate a feeling of loving kindness towards all living beings. And a hundred times more powerful than that is to experience for one moment the true nature of reality, to be able to see the arising and passing away of this body and of this mind. The path to that is mindfulness. And so he said, it is better to live one moment in mindfulness than a hundred years in ignorance. This is what is available to us. This is what, this is the preciousness of this opportunity that we have come to an environment where our sole responsibility is to ourselves in cultivating and generating this factor. Let's sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.